Father, we give you thanks for another day, another time to be together here on online, another time to be in your word. And I pray that you would open our minds up. Remind us, God, I think that you need to remind us of what you can do when things seem impossible. I think that's a big thing for us to get uh, today. And so I pray that you would use, use your word to encourage us in that. I pray that we'd be teachable and humble to receive, not jumping to conclusions, but being led by your spirit. Never wanting any, anything outside of your truth or outside of your agenda, God, we submit our time to you and ask that you would speak greatly. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so remember from last week, uh, Herod, I think it's Herod Agrippa. I think it's that's who, who it really is, but they name him as Herod. Um, he went after uh, the church, with, and it says with violent hands. When you look at verse 12, the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So he even killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And then he arrested Peter, but didn't put him to the sword, didn't kill him, um, but was planning... When you look at verse 3, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Um, and that was the day during the days of the unleavened bread. Um, and then he put him in prison. And then um, it says that he's going he's gonna to kind of bring him out to the people so the people can decide to do whatever they want to do with him. But when you look at the impossible that's set up against Peter, you look at, real quick up at verse 4. It says, um, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Um, that's a, I mean, that's not just like, hey, in a cell and a, a guy's going to sit there and watch you. But he's got guards that are specifically assigned to him. So now we pick up in verse 6. It says, now when Herod was about to bring him out, speaking of Peter, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Now, I think it's important, and as I was reading through some things, uh, it's important to notice between two soldiers, a lot of times, uh, uh, if, a, if, a, if a prisoner was really important, uh, they want to make sure that nothing happened to him and nothing, he didn't get away, um, they, would, they would chain one guard to him. But here, Peter has his own, and I think it would be the, I think it was the right hand to the left guard of the, like the right hand of the prisoner to the left hand of the guard. And I'm pretty sure that that'd be because most of the guards would probably be right-handed, not all, but a majority of them. They'd take a person with a strong hand, so they could they could take care of the prisoner if they needed to. But here they have Peter chained to two guards, so he's in between two. And Luke is making sure that he writes this down. Why? Because he, what he's doing is he's actually painting the picture that any prisoner who had been guarded or chained between two guards, they had absolutely no human hope of escape. So when Luke's writing, when Luke is writing, he's trying to make us understand: there is no way that you're going to get out of this. This is the only thing that you're that you're going to see. The last thing you're going to see is laying there or sitting there or standing between two soldiers. This is hopeless, absolutely hopeless. That's what he writes that down for: between two soldiers bound with chains, and sentries before the door who were guarding the prison. So you have the the two that are guarding them, and then you have a group of uh, guards that are that are um, they're they're guarding the the gate, and so now it's not remember it's not just one just on the outside watching. I mean, there's no hope. And remember, all that's happening, all that Herod is doing, is because he's he's playing politics is what he's doing. He knew the Jewish people couldn't stand uh, the Jewish, especially religious leaders, couldn't stand Peter, couldn't stand John, couldn't stand James, couldn't stand the church. They wanted it all gone, and so because he's trying to catered to them and they loved him. I mean, he 
He held to a lot of their standards and held to a lot of their laws. Not all, and we'll see later, probably next week um, when we get to that passage, but they loved him. And so he's just kind of catering to their applause. And so he has Peter in prison between two soldiers, and then the gates are um, they're guarded by centuries of, of prison guards. Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood, stood next to him. So I have no clue, because it doesn't say at any point that all of the guards fell asleep. I have no clue what's happening here. It doesn't say it specifically. All I know is just picture Peter thinking that he's going to be dead. And then all of a sudden, this angel just stands in the room or stands in the, in the prison cell next to him and a light shone in the cell. Then, verse, uh, the next part, verse 7, he struck Peter on the side and woke him. So Peter's out. Peter's conked out. And when he wakes up to us, this kick in the <laughs> this kick in the side. Don't you picture that maybe the angel could have walked up and just gently woken up? Hey, Peter. Hey, Peter. But he doesn't. He doesn't even bend down. He just kind of kicks him in the side, makes sure that he wakes up, and then saying, get up quickly. Now, here's the part. It's like, well, wait a minute. So this is a God thing. God's intervening, right? God's stepping in. Why do you have to be so quick? It doesn't say. I mean, but we can we can wonder. If God's in it, it's like sometimes we think because God's in it that there's really no there's no necessity to get there quick or to be wise or to make decisions that are right uh, in the right order at the right time to do things quickly. It's like we almost think, well, there's no there's no urgency because God will protect. But here we have an angel saying, get up quickly. I wonder how often, friends, we kind of jump into this idea, we're just going to test God, right? We're going to test God. So God wants this. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to walk down the street no matter what. And I'm, I'm going to walk across the street. I'm not going to look both ways. God wants me dead. I'll die. If not, he won't. It's almost like really the logical thing to do is just look left and right before you cross the street. But a lot of times I think we kind of walk through life like that. And yet Jesus is the one who said in the Gospels, and the one of the Gospel accounts, where he says, you know, we're supposed to be gentle as dove and as wise as serpents. We're supposed to use, like, we're supposed to be cunning in some in some ways. Again, we feel like, I feel like we have a culture in the States where as followers of Christ, we're going to stand for our rights, almost get militant about it. And then everything we stand against becomes militant and yet you have Christians in other parts of the world where they're, in, they're under a regime um, that is, um, that's oppressive. And yet Jesus would, I don't think he's saying, I want you to stand up and get militant. He's like, I just want you to be gentle as doves and wise as serpents. That there are times where I need to get up quickly and I need to go forward because God has this timing thing. And there's a sense of obedience. Will I obey God when he tells me to walk? And will I obey God when he tells me to run? But when I think of other Christians in other places, it's not like all of them are standing, um, holding signs. This is what we're about, Christians. Let's unite. I think that God's at time is at times God is saying, "I need you to just be still or be quiet. I need you to kind of make your way through quietly and gently, rather than stand up for everything as if everything is a military cause that every Christian is supposed to fight in that moment." Friends, we're supposed to fight against spiritual forces, not against people. He gave us cunning and wisdom so that we'd make wise decisions. But here he says, get up quickly. And then the chains fell off his hands. Like he didn't have to, it doesn't say the angel unlocked him. He didn't have to pull him off, nothing. It just fell off. So this is a God thing. This is a God moment. Verse eight. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. Now, here's the part that stood out to me in verses 8 to 9. 
It was just simple things. I want you to dress yourself and put on your sandals. And why would he say that? Well, maybe so he didn't, he didn't walk out of prison half naked. <laughs> I, don't think we need, I don't think we need to look for some deeper meaning. Well, what he's saying is dress yourself and put on your sandals, like dress with the armor of God. That's not what he's saying. I think that maybe he's just half naked so he can be comfortable as, as comfortable as he can at a prison cell. He's like, you got to put some clothes on. Get your sandals on. We're going for a walk. I don't want you walking out there half naked. And then, and he did so. And then the next one is, hey, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So wrap your cloak. So I don't know if it's covering his whole face so no one can see him. It's almost like a disguise. And then follow where it is that the angel's leading. And it's, all it was was simple obedience. The angel said to do it. He did so. He says, put the cloak around you. He went out and he followed. Put the cloak around you and follow me. And he did so. Followers of Jesus. I just had this conversation with somebody today. I feel like a lot of times what's preached or what's taught, and I've done it in the past, and, I, and there's a, sometimes there's this pressure um, for pastors and preachers to explain the reasons behind God's commandments. And so if God says, thou shalt not, it's like all of a sudden we kind of go, well, the, the reason behind it, if we really thought through it, then we would really know. Like, here's the reason, and this is, this is why, and here's the benefit of why it is that we should be obedient. Friends, we got to get out of that mindset. We got to get out of that mentality. We don't obey God simply because we agree that there's a positive outcome. If God at some point says, hey, no more pizza for Christians. Now, I like pizza, but if he said no more, I don't want, and he had to make it super, it has to be, <laughs> it has to be super clear. But he says no more pizza for Christians and followers of Jesus. We don't sit there and go, well, I can see why he said that because it's not the most healthy thing for you. And then other side's going, well, I don't think he said that because I really like it. It's almost like we try to, def to define whether or not God's worth obeying by whether or not we agree with the positive outcome that will come from our obedience. Friends, our obedience is supposed to be first and foremost based upon the fact that God is God. It has nothing to do with whether or not we are benefited by our obedience to what it is that God has said. Do you realize that at some point, I think it's Isaiah, that God told him that he wanted him to run around and preach naked? I'm be honest. I think it's, I think it's, I want to say it's like Isaiah 20-ish, somewhere around there. And I can't remember. It's not just like for a day. I don't remember the days. It just kind of came to my mind. Guys, I'll be honest. I'm really thankful <laughs> that, that I have not heard... <laughs> I have not heard that commandment from the Lord specifically to me saying, Brian, I want you out there. I want you to get, just take your clothes off. I want you to go butt naked and just preach my word. I want you to proclaim. I want you to prophesy. I'm so thankful that he hasn't called me to do it. But the thing is, Isaiah did it. He looked at, he looked at Ezekiel and when, Ezekiel's when his wife died, he's like, don't mourn her. And another point, he's like, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to lay on one side. I remember what side. Maybe this is the right side. And I, it's, it's, I think it's for at least a year. I want you to lay there, and then I want you to cook food um, using feces. And I'm just sitting there going, what? i like, oh, why would you ask someone to do that? And yet they did it. You even see when Jesus tells his disciples, the end of John 21, um, he's walking along the shore and they're out in boats and they've been fishing all night, didn't catch anything. The thing is, they didn't know that it was Jesus. And yet all that Jesus said is throw your net on the other side as if just throwing it on the other side of the boat. The boat's not very big. Just throw the net on the other side. And then all of a sudden the fish came in. The thing is, they didn't even know that it was him, but they still did it. What they said is, well, we've been here all night. And I think, there's a, I think it's earlier on when that first happened 
when Jesus had first told them and they knew it was Jesus, they actually, I think Peter responded, hey, we've been here all night, but because you say so, we'll do it. And they had been cleaning up from the, a, an, an evening or an all-nighter of fishing that wasn't productive. And they're cleaning up and here comes a guy going, I want you to go back out and put it on the other side. And they did it. And at no point did Jesus say, and this is what's going to happen if you do. And friends, our obedience is supposed to simply be obedience to Jesus, simply and solely because he's worthy of it. Even if I get nothing out of it personally, even if I'm quote unquote blessed in no way by it, but God calls us to do it, then aren't we supposed to obey him? Even if we don't quote unquote get something out of it, I think he's worthy to be obeyed, whether or not I see the benefit from it. And I put benefits in quotes. Verse 9. And he went out and followed him, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So as he's going through this whole experience, he's sitting, it's almost like he's sitting there going, there's no way this is real. Is this real? Verse 10. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. So what's happened so far? Peter's chained between two guys. Angel shows up. There's light coming out of the cell. And yet, I don't know if the guards are sleeping, if they're in a trance, if they don't have, they don't see any of it. And if that's why Peter's sitting there going, this isn't real. But then all of a sudden, the chains fall off of him automatically. He's told to do a certain thing, but at no point was he told to take the chains off. That happened. As they get to the gate that holds him in, that opens for him, but he's still called to follow. So it wasn't like, Hey, Peter, I'm going to get you out of here. Watch. And then bing. And then he's just gone. And he's exactly where he wants to be. He actually had to take the steps to follow. What if he had said no? What if he let his fear get? He's like, what if I get caught? I'm not moving. Can you imagine that maybe the, maybe the chains would still be off? Maybe the gate would have still been left open. But Peter would still be sitting there in a the cell with two guards on each side. But he doesn't. As he gets up, the chains fall off. As he keeps walking forward, the door opens for him. But he still has to walk. And then when he's outside, it says immediately the angel left him. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. What were they expecting? They were expecting that Peter would be killed. That's what they were expecting, right? They were expecting that Peter would be killed. And here comes Peter going, okay, now I know. That God is the one who's delivered me not only from Herod, but also all these other people that wanted to do something to me. What they expected. Friends, I think it's a reminder for us that what seems impossible, God is not limited by that. Impossible, I say this often, I've, I've said it so many times throughout the years, impossible is God's playground. I feel like a lot of times we'll hit the impossible situations and, and there's nothing wrong with us trying to use wisdom to come up with solutions. But I'm wondering, have we missed something at the first reaction that we have is not to go into prayer and reliance upon God, but to simply push that to the side because I've got something to do. What if we switched our priorities and prayer become the first response, the first reaction, the first response that we have is to simply ask God, what do you want? What do you want? How are you going to do this? This seems impossible. And then we start coming up with ideas. And what if those ideas don't pan out? Does that mean that it's hopeless? No, I think, I think, I think Luke is trying to make sure as he's, penning, as he's penning these words in the book of Acts, hey, how impossible was this? 
Peter's chained between two soldiers, and yet God still got him out. If you go to the beginning of Luke, and I wonder if this verse came to his mind, because in Luke chapter 1, he wrote that too. When, when Mary hears about the fact that she, as a virgin, is going to give birth to the Messiah, the Son of God, which is kind of a big deal, it'd be one thing to be pregnant and never had sex. It's another thing to be pregnant and never having sex, and yet be told that you would be giving birth to the Son of God. That's kind of a big deal. <laughs> you know, in verse 37, uh, the angel says, and I think it's Gabriel says, hey, for nothing will be impossible with God. And can you imagine as Luke is writing that part, I was like, oh, that's good. That's good. Nothing will be impossible with God. And then you jump to Acts chapter 12 and you get to verse 6 and he's going, okay, this is an impossible situation. But remember, and nothing will be impossible with God. I think maybe for some, if you're watching now or watching later or listening later, I think you need to be reminded that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Nothing is impossible with God. God does what he wants when he wants. And isn't it weird? Like we, we look and go, oh, look at him saving the day. But we go back to the beginning of chapter 12 and we know that James, the brother of John, was killed with the sword. So did, did God fail then? So did he fail James and then come through for Peter and look back at James going, oh, I'm so sorry. And then when James is in the presence of God because he's a follower of Christ, that God looked at him and said, oh, I'm so sorry. I was so busy focusing on Peter that I forgot all about you. Let me make it up to you. In fact, you get a bigger room or you get a bigger mansion because we think heaven has a bunch of mansions. You get a bigger mansion than anybody. And Peter, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna live across the street from you in some little shack here in heaven. I forgot. Let me pay you. Guys, at no point did God fail. God didn't fail in the beginning of chapter 12, and he didn't succeed more than in chapter 12 when he let Peter when he let Peter out. Friends, we have to trust God in his timing, absolutely. His plan, how he pulls things together. Why? Because nothing's impossible with God. I mean, think about it. If James, the brother of John, is killed by Herod and word gets out, don't you think that all of a sudden maybe the church becomes a little bit more timid? gets a little bit more quiet, isn't really becoming witnesses. But we'll see even later next week that the word of God continued to go out and people were making disciples. Disciples were making disciples. They could not be stopped. And so what seems impossible for us is very possible and doable for God for nothing is impossible with God. It doesn't, but again, it doesn't mean that we jump in and we and we test God and with all these small little, it's like do, do some parlor tricks while I just walk forward to walk in faith does not mean to walk blindly without being led by God, and then God will fix everything along the way. To walk by faith means I'm going to walk forward with God. I'm going to follow his leading, and whatever it is that he wants me to do, I'll do, and I'll trust him with the outcome of what's going to happen while I'm doing it. It's all in response to faith. It's never me leading the way and God's up, coming up behind trying to clean up the mess and protecting us as we go. It's I'm following his leading, what it is that he wants me to do. Isn't that what happens for Peter? All that happened for me. I'm going to go where God wants me to go. I'm going to trust him as he tells me to go. I'm just simply going to obey. That is not testing the Lord that's being obedient. Walking by faith is not putting God to the test. Walking by faith is us walking with God through the test because he's leading us through the test. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John. This even says whose other name was Mark. So John Mark, John Mark we know because he's the guy that wrote the gospel of Mark. So he, he, the first place he goes is to Mary's house and this is his son or her son is John Mark. 
And it's thought that the reason that he went there is because this now is the central location for the quote-unquote church in Jerusalem. Remember in chapter 8, the church had been dispersed, yet the apostles stayed, stayed true in Jerusalem. But all the disciples took off into different regions and different areas, and as they went, they were proclaiming the gospel, which made the, which made the gospel um, go out, well, what they knew, out um, into all the world slowly, but going, but then multiplying, because people would come to Christ, then they would become disciples, and they would tell people about Jesus. Not, hey, some people did tell people about Jesus, and others didn't. They just let the ones do it, then the rest just kind of stayed back in small groups. And in Bible studies, they just waited for heaven. No, the gospel spread and multiplied because disciples made disciples. And those disciples who were made by these disciples went out and made disciples. That's multiplication. And I'm convinced that that is what the scriptures teach. That's the model that we're supposed to follow as followers of Jesus. Think about it. Every single one of you who are a follower of Christ, you came to know Christ because of someone. Someone, inv- someone invited you to hear about Jesus in some way or another. But a person did that for you, and it's our turn to take the baton and to do the same thing for others. So he shows up in in Mary's house, which is thought to be the central location of the church in Jerusalem at this time. says, where many were gathered together, and watch, and were praying. That's it. You say, what's it? That's it. What was the church doing here? They were gathered together to pray. It wasn't a worship service. It wasn't a preaching time. They gathered together to pray. Friends, I'm being reminded over and over over the last couple weeks of the necessity and the call for followers of Jesus to pray. And a lot of times we'll put the word simply pray because we think, well, it's just a simple thing. But think about what we're doing when we pray. When we pray, we're going before the creator of the universe. Whether it's a a need that we have to present to him personally or we're Or we're standing in the gap for someone else and praying on their behalf, but we're taking them before the creator of the universe that God would intervene in a miraculous way. So it's not simply praying, but then the invitation is, quote unquote, to simply pray. In other words, let's just get back to the basics. Let's pray. Let's actually pray believing that God is going to do what it is that he wants to do. And then when he tells us to get up, we go and follow. All those things, we apply them, but we first pray. So what's the church doing? Are they scaling the walls? To get into the prison, to release Peter, not at all. They're all gathered together, Mary's house, praying because they actually believe that prayer works. And I don't know that we have that same thing today. I don't know that we actually really believe that because think about it. How many times have you prayed and you didn't see what you wanted to happen, happen? And yet, here's the thing. The purpose of prayer is not to get what we want. The purpose of prayer is to see what God wants happen. We want his will. Remember, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not mine, not my will, but your will be done. That's how we should be praying. And so in the times when we've prayed and God's come through, we're like, that's it, it worked. This time it worked. And then all of a sudden it didn't, the other time when it didn't turn out like we thought it should, we kind of, well, I prayed and nothing happened. It's weird how we accept God's yes as great and good and he's so powerful and wise. And yet when it comes to God's no, we don't apply the same attributes of God being great and good, has a plan and is all wise. We don't apply that to the no, just the yes. In other words, it's like, God, you should be doing what I think you should be doing because my, what, my perspective is eternal? It absolutely is not. They prayed. They simply prayed. And that's where they were gathered together for. Verse 13. I love this. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl, 
A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. She's so excited that she's, as, she, as Peter's trying to get in, she recognizes his voice, and then instead of opening the gate, just bolts off to tell people about him. She's just excited. <laughs> she's just so, she forgot to let him in so she could tell everyone there, hey, Peter's outside. Now, here's the thing. It would have been easier for her to convince everyone that Peter was actually outside by bringing him from the outside to the inside. I think at some point, maybe he, she should have slowed down and was like, okay, what's the best step here? Leave the dude who just broke out of prison, leave him outside to be found, or maybe I should just bring him in. But she, well, you got to give her credit. It was in her joy. Can she even thinking? She was just so excited. Goes on. Uh, verse 16, verse 17. I'm sorry, let's keep going. Verse 16. But she kept insisting. Oh no, so I'm sorry, I'm skipping it. Verse 14. Go back to this. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in to report what Peter was standing in the gate. And they said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. Which is, I don't know what they meant by that. Either. I don't, I mean, the scriptures don't teach that when you died, you then become an angel. That's not how it works. So we don't earn our wings. Every time you hear a bell ring, the angel earns their wings. That's not true. We as, we as followers of Jesus, we do not become angels when we die. But, the way they, but what they could have said, been meaning is, hey, he has, a, he has a guardian angel and that's who it is. It doesn't, mention, it doesn't mention an explanation. You get to verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. The first thing he says, okay, let me tell you what happened. Tells them the whole story. Can you imagine jaws on the ground? They're just like, they have no clue what to say. And then when he's done, he goes, okay, you got to go tell people. Got to go tell everyone what happened because everyone knew that Peter was arrested. Everyone knew that Peter had been arrested because Herod wanted to, uh, he wanted to play to the crowd. And But he says, tell these things to James. Now, what's James? This can't be James from ch- chapter 12, verse 2. He's dead. But James was a common name. This James would have been the younger half-brother of Jesus. He's like, so this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to Jesus's half-brother, James, Make sure he hears about it and then to the rest of the brothers. I want everyone to know. Tell my brothers, tell my boys that this is what's happened. And then he departed and went to another place. Why would he make sure that everyone got to hear about this? Guys, would this not jack up the church? Would this not jazz up the the early disciples when all of a sudden he's like, Peter's going to die. It's going to happen and it's going to happen tomorrow, I bet. And all of a sudden Peter's out and then you get word he's he's been released, but not released by Herod, but released by God. Doesn't that get the Christians kind of going, ready to, oh my gosh, look what God did again. So it's like, we got to, guys, we got to have a place where we're telling, this is what God did. I saw God do this. Whether it's big or small, quote unquote, whatever we think it is. Because a lot of times, don't you find yourself like, I I don't want to pray for the small things because they're not that important. I'll pray for the big things because we think that God's busy. But then we also, it's like, I got to pray hard for this big thing. Because it's so big, you have to realize that to an eternal, limitless God who has all power, the big requests and the small requests are exactly the same size. It doesn't take more effort from God to do the quote-unquote big things as it does for him to do the little things. He's eternal. He's, 
He's perfect in power. He is the epitome of power. All power belongs to him. And so he doesn't sit there and go, gosh, that is a really big one. I got I to gotta get ready for this. And then just kind of, like, I don't know, he puts the headphones on and goes into game mode and just gets ready all jacked up. Guys, I don't think that's, it doesn't take him more effort to do the big things as the small things. We just simply ask for whatever it is that comes to our mind, trusting his will as we go. But I think at this point, the followers of Jesus needed to be encouraged. The one that was supposed to die, it was impossible for him to get out. Wait, he's freed because God wanted him out? Wouldn't that then encourage and embolden the church and his word spread from there and just spread throughout the areas? Don't you think that that would encourage and move the Christians to continue to move forward in boldness no matter what persecution they were experiencing? So is it possible that in all of this, that as James was killed, as hard as it is for us to hold on to, because when you look at James or the end of John chapter 21, I mean, Jesus, Jesus tells um, Peter, this is how you're going to die. Like, it's going to happen this way. Let me see if I can find it real quick. When you get to verse, nine, uh, verse 18 of John 21, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he's, he's saying this to, to Peter, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. In verse 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Peter's death brought glory to God. James's death in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, brought glory to God. Peter's release here in the middle of chapter 12 brought glory to God. Peter's death later on because of his love for Christ, not willing to be executed the same way, but requesting the church tradition is true, that he be um, hung upside down so he didn't die the exact same way that Jesus brought glory to God. Guys, we have to realize that God is working for his glory. What he is doing for his glory, we have to pull back and go, okay, but from my limited perspective, it doesn't look like that. But from God's eternal perspective, with his glory in mind, we can trust him. So what seems impossible is actually God's playground. What seems improbable is God's opportunity to bring about the miraculous. And either to remind us that God is able or to show everyone that God can still do what he says he'll do. What if, it's, what if what's going on in the world, what if what's going on, everything that's going on, Instead of us sitting there going, we're losing it, we're losing it. What if God's sitting there going, I am setting things up for maybe one of the greatest revivals in the history of the world. What if? So instead of us walking forward in terror, oh, the things used to be so much better, this nation used to be so much better. What if we pulled back and went, wait, God, we want to see your kingdom come. We want to see your will be done. We want to see people come to Christ. We want to see a movement of the Spirit like never before. What if he's got to bring people to a place where everything seems impossible so that we'll stop thinking that we can figure it out and watch we'll you rely upon the God who plays in the impossible? What if? So instead of us trying to dictate what it is that God is doing or he should do, what if we pulled back and we just simply trust and when he told us to get up, he tells us to get up and get dressed and put our shoes on. We do it because he said so. And when he tells us to put a cloak around us and to follow him, we just do it because he tells us to do it. And if until we get those very specific directions, if he says, go make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey, all that, all that Jesus commanded, we just simply do it because he's worthy. Verse uh, 18, and this is where we'll close it up. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers 
over what had become of Peter. In other words, everyone's freaking out. Can you imagine being one of the guards? Because you got to realize the guards are freaking out. They're terrified of what's happening. Guys, in this day, if a guard was given responsibility of, of guarding a, uh, a prisoner, if that prisoner escaped, then that guard would be responsible to pay, not monetarily, but whatever was the sentence of the prisoner they were watching, that is what the guard would endure. So if a prisoner watching a prisoner who's going to be in prison for the rest of his life, that guard would then go to prison for the rest of his life. If a person was going to, is to be executed and they lost that prisoner, that guard and those guards around them would be executed. They're terrified of what's coming. Verse 19, And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. And that's it. That's where it ends. It never says they looked for Peter again. They don't know what happened to him. He's gone. But it doesn't say that Herod, doesn't say that Herod says, go find him. It's like he just goes. It's like, yeah, put these guys to death. It's almost like nonchalantly. Like it doesn't impact him. And yet above that is this miraculous thing that was happening. That those who weren't followers of Jesus had no clue about. While a little, while a little girl, Rhoda, a little servant girl named Rhoda, is filled with joy when she sees the deliverance of Peter because of God's intervention. The rest of them were experiencing terror because they never got to see the intervention of God. They didn't, they didn't witness it for themselves. Fathers of Jesus were supposed to have a different perspective. And very often our, our perspectives are changed when God, places in the, when God places us in the places of the impossible. That's the moment where God gets to show up and show off. Friends, be encouraged. God has everything. He knows what he's doing. At no point has he said, oops, oh, I better fix this. I, did, I wasn't quite sure how this would turn out. Friends, he's in complete control. He knows what he's doing. And when things seem out of control, we go back to this passage. When things seemed impossible, friends, that is, that is always God's greatest opportunity to show us just how incredible he truly is. And the fact that he is sovereign and can do anything that he wants. Nothing can stop God. He will accomplish his will.